Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer, Randy Kim. I hope you're staying safe and well during this difficult time during the COVID-19 pandemic. I also want to acknowledge that this May is Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month, celebrating and recognizing the contributions and history of our Asian Pacific Islander community. I am about to wrap up the second season of this podcast, which is centered on the theme 1975 the 45-year anniversary of the end of the Vietnam and Laos Civil War and the start of the Khmer Rouge rule over Cambodia. For this week's episode, I am releasing part two of my interview with my guest Sina Sam, a longtime Cambodian-American community leader from Washington State. She became the first Cambodian-American woman to serve as the commissioner for the Asian Pacific American Affairs for Governor Inslee's office in Washington State. She is a co-founder of the Khmer Anti-Deportation Group and is now serving as the field director for CRAC, otherwise known as Southeast Asia Resource Center. In part one of the previous episode, I asked Sina about her upbringing in Washington after her parents fled from the Khmer Rouge and the challenges that she would face head on when she became pregnant at 15 and dropped out of high school at age 16. For part two, she talked about how her experience as a teen mom will lead her to be actively involved in reproductive justice rights and eventually in Cambodian American Southeast Asian civic engagement. She talked about the issues concerning deportations in the Southeast Asian American communities across the U.S. and the group she co-founded to advocate against the deportations. I absolutely enjoyed my time talking to her and having her share her incredible journey with us. Thank you and stay safe everyone. Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnamese-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on their Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle or on their Facebook page. yourself as a person too oh, okay. so, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you understand so. uh, I mean I think yeah. it's, it's such a comp it's such a complexity mm-hmm. uh, to you know and what you had to experience in and also the kind of a the kind of history that your parents have had what they've had to experience what they mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. about what about what they know, what they don't know. So right, right. they also had to learn about right, your experiences exactly. in, a, yeah. in a way that was so difficult for you in, in the most difficult part of your own life too. So, right. And it was difficult for them because they had no idea that this was going to be that reality. So right. it's a very yeah. new experience that you all, all of you had Everybody to experience together. And That's it was not something that no one had a blueprint of. So yeah, you I know my family. <laughs> I gotta say, I'm I'm really thankful for you to you know share that and and also and also kind of going into uh, what I also want to talk about is mm-hmm. what event, you had gone into advocacy work in college, mm-hmm. and you also started getting involved with the Kamai community again, mm-hmm. and and I wonder, especially given what you had to deal with in your own relationship with the community, especially as a single, not as a single, but as a teenage mother, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
there is a lot of fear coming back to that community seeing yeah, the faces yeah. and you know seeing the judging looks and mm-hmm. side comments this is what we experience in our own community um, mm-hmm. that's the microaggressive nature of it and and i was wondering mm-hmm. what led you to uh to renew your relationship with the community to dive back in that's a great question, and I'm glad you're um, you're so perceptive here in terms of recognizing that there is a coming back to the community that um, I I had to go through, and you know maybe others who when we think of traversing um, the uh, different um, ways of um, upward mobility. Oftentimes it's further away from our community or family when you're going off to college or attaining more education or more skills or expertise than your family has. Like say going from, you know, like a poor family to um, being able to climb the ladder to achieve some type of economic um, success. That's, uh, it's a real thing for not just, you know, Khmer, Southeast Asians, uh, Vietnamese folks or refugees or immigrants, but um, any family, uh, especially in the U.S. context, when you know you're you're coming from a certain community or family that is in poverty, and then someone leaves or is able to climb out of it, there's that distance and that separation that happens. Of you know, like some people feeling like uh, they're not one of us anymore, or <laughs> they've sold out, or you know, those things can happen, and um, for you to recognize that this is exactly what happened for me <laughs> in terms of departing from the community and first um, forcibly being uh, disowned by my parents, um, I had to find, you know, like other ways of uh, building around my identity and raising my family uh, without that connection. Um, when I went back, to uh, college and connected with uh, the Khmer Student um, Association at the University of Washington when I transferred um, from my community college is when I started to really um, reconnect, I'd say with like my culture, my people, um, the community again, because the years before that I mainly uh, focused on working and (laughs) going to school. Yeah, and um, I don't want at all there to be a connection to say that like my worth or value, um, you know, to my parents or to the community um, was affirmed or better just because I happened to be doing better in life or what looked like I wasn't failing or um, you know, I was succeeding. So I think for me, I, because if I believe that there would be a whole lot of resentment there, <laughs> um, you know, I may not be able to get over, uh, being, um, totally excluded and disowned and, um, being all called all sorts of names. And I've shared with a few people um, who I do prison work with um, about how um, in terms of that um, 
expulsion from my community mm -hmm. was really difficult for me and for my family uh, because in some ways had I like gone a, a, tr a different route of say getting into trouble and ending up in prison uh, at that time it may have been I felt like it may have been better than for me to be pregnant <laughs> as a teenager mm -hmm. and um, with someone who was not Cambodian or Khmer, um, because then, you know, I would be kind of like away, out of sight, out of mind. But uh, as someone with like a circumstance that is frowned upon um, by the community and my parents, it was really scary for me to think about um, coming back again. And, uh, and not necessarily for myself, because by that point I had I, I knew <laughs> uh, I had grown a lot of thicker skin by then. Um, and uh, I had also, um, my main concern was my son. So, so, so long as he wasn't being harmed um, and hurt and put down or ostracized, then I would be fine. Um, and so I had, when I uh, reconnected with the, uh, the community through the Khmer Student Association and being a student, um, it made it a little easier because um, I was coming in in a position where it was encouraged because I was a college student um, and a part of a student group that uh, is celebrating our culture and um, putting on like New Year's shows. And so I felt a welcoming and um, uh, I, I didn't expect it because I guess in the back of my mind, I was thinking there would still be, um, uh, that successful <laughs> that you were reminded of by your parents that you right. do as well. Right. I mean, that was something I had to experience, but yeah, I, I, I definitely see, uh, your experiences in that because it took me a long time to come back or be in proximity to, uh, the Vietnamese and Cambodian community mm, was reminded yeah. that I was never going to be enough as my right. peers and so I felt like and they also were more economically well off the ones that mm. I had been around oh, yeah. so obviously that factored into it so I didn't want to be anywhere near that mm -hmm. um, but I think you know coming into an organization that is always on the back of your mind is like oh my god am I gonna see this old person I remember <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the triggering. Yeah, the yeah. triggering this, uh, this, um, this, the, the, the occurring, the reoccurring memories of right. your own past coming back to haunt you once more. Right. Um, but, you know, coming into an organization, I can only imagine like it's progressive, it mm -hmm. has a very forward thinking. Mm -hmm. um, whereas a family, we're going to share our own experiences. Did you feel a lot of that immediately when you joined in? Um, I, uh, I think um, the way I joined in was through um, getting connected with a, a production, a Khmer production crew that were college students. And I wanted to be a part of this play that talked about um, the Khmer Rouge, and at that time in the early 2000s, um, there weren't many forms of, you know, like uh, entertainment or books or novels, movies, outside of um, the classic Killing Fields um, uh, 
the Spelling Bee movie. Are you familiar with that one? Um, I heard about that. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. Yeah, I've watched them all. And so at that time, by the time I was like in my late teens and early 20s, um, and I, I was in a position where I uh, could have access to um, college and student groups, I took advantage of that. Um, and I, I immediately felt uh, a homecoming connecting with the students because they were um, peers my age, although they didn't have children or a child like I did yeah. uh, or were married like I was. Um, uh, but they knew, they could totally imagine what my experience was coming from when I told them I did have a young child and uh, my partner is black. <laughs> uh, we, what we've gone through that, you know, they, when I told them I was disowned, they, you know, right away were like, I was surprised, you know, it wasn't worse. Like we could joke about it. And it was the first time I felt like heard and seen and my identity was shared a place where and that was what I mentioned earlier in my childhood and adolescent years I didn't have that community I think if I had it I might have fared off even better <laughs> more you know just I imagine my a supported Sina in some sort of support group or had friends or um, family or um, peers who uh, had the um, openness and um, willingness to be vulnerable with one another, um, and but still very proud and celebrate um, the parts of ourselves in our culture. Try to learn about it because all of us are, you know, uh, really unsure what Khmer is or mm -hmm. what Cambodian Americans, what our identities still were at the time, but. Um, at least we were unsure of it together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And you continue to, uh, to, you can, you continue your involvement uh, with the community. And it also led you to uh, eventually working for the governor's office. <laughs> as a so I was wondering if you can also share that experience because, because you had such a, an interesting journey, um, you know, navigating through being uh, raising um, raising a young child at a young age, mm -hmm. going back to school, trying to find a way to um, be a part of the community, mm -hmm. and then taking on different levels of activism that was obviously something that you felt uh, very strongly about because of your own mm -hmm. experiences. So I was mm -hmm. wondering what uh, led you to end up working for the governor's office which is pretty amazing what you're, you're currently doing now thank you um yeah let's fast forward a bit yeah <laughs> and um i would say in summary um after i learned more about myself through understanding my parents more because um i recognize that um like you mentioned, it, it was hard for everybody all around to go through um, uh, unplanned pregnancy or um, the conditions we grew up in um, with disparities that impact all of our families and communities or many of us. And so once I got to that point where, you know, I really wasn't blaming my parents anymore or putting that burden of fault 
of saying, you know, if I had this or if I had that, then I really um, went in the direction of more of being an advocate. Uh, so I moved from first wanting to learn about my identity more and found other people and community who shared that same experience as me. And the ones I learned, you know, I was absolutely normal. And my parents were, um, it's a common experience of uh, what their personalities are. And, you know, really, honestly, thinking about it, it's a parent myself, like uh, <laughs> um, my son, you know, getting pregnant at like 15, I would freak out even though I went through it myself. So yeah. I recognize, <laughs> I recognize, after I recognize that there's just certain things um, in my control uh, and how I react, how I can react to a situation that has no one else um, to blame but myself or uh, no one else to um, be responsible for that, con the, the result of um, how I choose to um, move forward. After that, I uh, really took the had agency to like get citizenship for myself. I was thinking um, at that time it was 2001 or 2002 when I was in college, mm -hmm. and the news hit that um, Cambodia was accepting deportees um, or was accepting Cambodian Americans back to Cambodia. And at the time, there was uh, a couple waves of folks who uh, were in danger since like 1998. Um, but I wasn't aware of it. And when I became aware of it. Yeah, it was right I, after the 1996 uh, uh, immigration bill that uh, was passed by, yeah, uh, after by both the Republicans and Democrats. And it was under the Clinton administration where they decided to mm -hmm, uh, punish mm -hmm, exactly. any immigrants who committed any form of uh, crime. Right, right. Um, a lot of crimes became uh, aggravated felonies under this law, which really just uh, heightened um, the severity of any crime committed by um, uh, those who didn't have citizenship status. Uh, and so I guess to get to the governor's office is <laughs> I feel like at that time was when my advocacy started was when I realized I am someone who can make um, life choices that uh, can help others because um, when I got my citizenship right away I was uh, the first in my family to do it before my parents were um, everyone um, except for my youngest sister who was born here she's a natural born citizen um, but the rest of us who um, had legal permanent resident status I became um, the first to get citizenship and once I got citizenship because um, right away I had heard about and, and I was shocked that this was possible that my dad could be deported I could be deported people in the community potentially. I didn't know, you know, at the time what uh, would cause a person to be deported, but just I knew this was a possibility then. And so after that, um, I just learned as much as I could um, possibly do and shift from uh, cultural, social, um, uh, shift in my cultural, social identity uh, and focus and, you know, learning and sharing and bonding um, my identity to really uh, learning what 
rights I have, what rights my parents have. Um, and in some ways, I've always acted as an agent in that way. And I'm sure you've, you've already mentioned you've done it, that too as an eldest um, child and helping your family maneuver different uh, systems. And uh, so early on, I had already had these skills of translating, um, of being responsible for um, others. Uh, but at that point, I think this is when um, my world perspective kind of expanded in terms of who I was in the world. I wasn't just um, someone who was like surviving teen pregnancy now. Now I had gained some education. Um, I had access to resources and uh, I wanted to find out um, everything around why it was that it was possible for Khmer people, Cambodians, to be deported. Um, and I did at that time start to uh, gain that knowledge. Um, and I didn't do anything really with it because I didn't know what I could do besides I, it was like uh, interest of mine to know. So if people asked or um, if, you know, like I just wanted to make sure my family was safe because my parents weren't um, citizens. and. Uh, other Cambodians I cared about. And so after I learned that, and it came in handy later on when um, I was connected with um, other organizations in the community, in particular, uh, a group called Khmer in Action. Mm -hmm. um, and there had been a lot of national um, organizing with local Cambodian leaders um, who were organizing around deportation since like 19, you know, the late 90s, since that IRA, IRA, and APA laws passed. So I didn't really get linked into it until um, uh, it, people started being deported in 2002. And I think that really um, struck a fear in me that, um, I had never felt before in terms of for my community, in terms of being a Khmer person. Um, I had thought, you know, the hardest thing was surviving teen pregnancy and uh, building a positive identity out of such calamity and breaking cycles of, of you know, toxicity and violence and uh, poverty and all those things. And of course, that was really difficult. But I just thought to myself, uh, after going through all that, and then being and imagining if I was someone who had to like be separated from my son, or like after my parents and our elders, and our community members had survived so much to be here to just survive and get to where we were. And I just I just, I don't know, I, I guess I couldn't accept it because um, I just saw that the community, we were just rebuilding or starting to with my generation going to college, gaining, you know, access to higher education or starting families, <laughs> owning businesses. Yeah. And I'm sure that there, there has been many in our community who are you know, like um, on those uh, paths of success, but those are like not our common community narrative. There are definitely families and people who become doctors and lawyers and who um, have bought homes and um, 
have built their family or small communities uh, in successful, what is traditionally considered successful, but that's not the majority of right. the experience for our community. And so I was just devastated at that point um, to think that then now we have our family separated again. <laughs> I just, um, I think, yeah. Uh, just, I think mostly it was rooted in thinking about my family. Like, mm. I think about the all of the hurt and pain um, and love and um, memories and things that we've shared together. Even after everything I've been through with them, I would never want to be forcibly separated from them in that way. Like, that's, you know, what happened to our families and to, yes, and to also have them deported back into a country where they faced violence. Right. 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 That's, and my parents have never been back. <laughs> they, they, I mean, they won't even go back. So I, yeah, that, I think, so leading it to the governor's office, I think that's where the, the fire was first lit in me. And, uh, and I, didn't start off as an organizer and uh, advocate right away. I just, that was just the passion I, I it ignited already in me in terms of caring for the issue. And then later on, as the years went, I found ways to just come back to it with tools and resources um, when I was able to. And I think I was the most effective after I had graduated college and um, uh, was able to connect with um, skills, uh, tangible hard skills on, you know, how to lobby and canvas and uh, campaign um, and uh, the rights that um, our community members should have. And with that knowledge, I think it's what armed me to be able to step into positions where I'm able to uh, advocate for others and connect them to resources and tools that I know about. And I think naturally as a role as a commissioner, um, when I started organizing, uh, and I didn't do it, this is a span of like 15 yeah. years, Randy, and I didn't uh. start right away as an organizer. Um, I was raising my son for most of it and yeah. um, going to school and working. But uh, now that he's obviously older is where I'm sure, you know, you start started hearing about the work that I do just because I'm able to um, be more in the front lines and be a part of uh, the movement in more meaningful, tangible ways. Yeah. And in your role as a, in your role with the governor's office, what has been your relationship like with the governor's office in sure. working on the anti-deportations? Because... Obviously, this has been going on for a really long time. I mean, I mean, most people think that it just happened now under Trump. It's this has been going on under Obama's administration, mm -hmm. George Bush's, to Clinton. Clinton. Yeah. Yes. So I was wondering what your relationship is like in trying to push uh, for the uh, the release of those incarcerated mm -hmm. and facing removal, but also. Uh, but also uh, your relationship with the Cambodian community at that point in, in trying to get them to be more civically engaged and mm -hmm. to also help push 
for the uh, the release of those that are incarcerated, mm -hmm. um, to advocate for anti-deportation work in our community. I was wondering what that role has been like in navigating both of those um, mm -hmm. directions. Sure. Um, you're right that uh, a lot of the um, deportations has been escalated under the Trump administration, but it's been something that the Cambodian community um, has been uh, dealing with for two decades now, almost yeah. two decades. Um, and there are um, grassroots organizers um, and, and uh, who's been doing it for so long, who I have the honor now of learning from and connecting with and building with and being a part of um, where I can contribute to the work that they started and built up and continue to do. I, I feel like I have so many homecomings the more um, I do work with my family, with my community and um, really try to be um, a uh, participant in shaping um you know like i mentioned having agency and that's really uh another way to put it is realizing that your decisions and actions is um ultimately up to you um and you can shape you know your future or you can shape other people's uh by having that i didn't have that for i felt like most of my life until that point where you know like I, I could always say uh, this was out of my control or if that was different or this was different. So my outlook and saying um, and having more of the perspective that I need to lead it, I need to have um, an action that I do and stick with and see what those consequences are and continue towards a goal. Um, I so in Seattle in particular, we have a very prominent um, longtime organizer uh, named Wong Mani Ut. He's uh, one of the main um, stories in a documentary called Sentence Home, which, which mm. was one of the first to uh, break the story of how uh, deportations uh, is impacting um, Cambodian Americans. And he's a prominent organizer in that when he was incarcerated, he uh, fought for ways to try and fight his deportation while he was um, facing it, one of the first. And uh, I have um, the privilege of um, when I started my work to be uh, a bit mentored and connect with um, all of the strategies and um, work that he put into. Uh, uh, fighting not only for himself, but for other uh, people who were in his situation. And so I think it was fortunate that one of the most prominent Khmer American, um, if not the first um, organizer to really fight against um, Khmer deportations was Bong Mani Uich. Uh, and so having him there, I think, really positioned me who wanted to be mentored and who wanted to learn how I could best help in the movement and join it um, and then connect nationally with so many other uh, organizations who are doing the work in their states. Um, it allowed me to uh, think about uh, 
outside of organizing, how could I have a policy impact? And I think uh, since my training is uh, essentially was in health policy, <laughs> I just converted that, those skills in campaigning and lobbying and canvassing, like I mentioned earlier, as a trained um, organizer in health advocacy to immigration um, and deportation advocacy. And I think uh, I uh, felt like um, on a state level, uh, there wasn't representation um, enough. Of course, we know that in terms of elected officials, we don't have enough of our people reflected um, in those positions of leadership. And I think because I, I felt if no one else was doing it, then what's stopping me from trying? Mm, mm. And recently, you've also uh, co you co-founded the Kamai Anti-Deportation Group uh, with Salong Chun and also other members, uh, Sabang mm -hmm. Lam and uh, Monta Chum, and there's several other folks too that I've neglected. So forgive me if I didn't mention their names, but seeing the work that you've been doing, at least from proximity, from a digital proximity standpoint, mm -hmm. uh, it is emotionally draining work. And when I talk with Salong about it, it's this is work that you do not get paid for. This is work that you mm -hmm. are doing aside from parenting, aside from your full-time job, mm -hmm. but to work with families who are experiencing this very issue of their family love their loved ones uh, being deported and also working with those who are in incarcerated figuring out what their rights are where um to connect their family members to an ice uh, holding block mm -hmm. i mean there's so much work that goes into this process I was wondering if you can shed some light mm -hmm. in your own experiences being in this group and how did it get formed and how do you um, how do you as a group work together, especially when there's so many urgent issues that are happening uh, with the Trump administration, it seems like there's so many new raids that are happening each mm -hmm. week and mm -hmm. that there are more uh, members getting incarcerated and mm -hmm. the timing for possible releases has been minimized mm -hmm. uh, by the day. So there's so much at play, there's so much urgency. So how, mm -hmm. um, how, what has that work taught you so far? And how do you navigate the, your roles in mm -hmm. as a group to, mm -hmm. uh, to find balance, but to also, but to also be effective in this work? Right. Oh, that's. I know there's a lot of questions. I'm a long set either, to that so. answer, <laughs> but yeah. I would I would say for uh, Cage, the Khmer Anti Deportation Advocacy Group that we formed, uh, we really formed it in 2008, and as I mentioned, has built with my knowledge and my experience um, in close proximity to a group called Khmer in Action um, that advocated for um, the pardon of Mangmane Uch. Um, back in uh, the late 2000s and succeeded, um, one of the first cases. Um, it really set a precedent, at least in my mind, for Seattle organizing to continue. Um, so when I saw that 
client action had uh, disbanded. Um, and, you know, folks, when it comes to this type of work and you're advocating for, um, it's not just separation of families and something um, that I, I believe everybody should be against. <laughs> but when it comes to, you know, areas of uh, legalities and what's moral and um, things like that, there's judgment on, uh, you know, someone with a record. And if mm -hmm. you commit a crime, you know, people say you do the time. And that's true. But in terms of what that time is, I, I just felt um, there was an area there where, for me at least, my particular niche or specialty is being able to explain those nuances um, using my education, using disaggregated data, using um, uh, elected officials and connections to education, um, educating uh, about our community um, needs and um, uh, struggles. And that has allowed to paint a more um, effective and um, accurate picture of why someone should be advocated for if they're facing deportation, even if they committed, committed a crime, um, even if you don't like them. <laughs> um, because essentially, uh, for me, and um, what I always stand behind is that um, it's not really even, it's not really about the individual in uh, the greater scheme. It's more about what um, is just in terms of impact uh, for um, a group of people uh, that policies will um, enact. Uh, and so uh, even if some, one person is not deserving of it, everybody is treated the same way if you have a policy that um, doesn't see them uh, in unique circumstances and how they got to where they are or they reformed um, you know and are advocating for those who have committed a crime or those who may never committed a crime but um, during the 1990s of um, uh, being really uh, tough on crime and um, you know three strikes you're out type of um, environment uh, judicial and legal and um, foreign policy environment, then, uh, you know, you can have a innocent, totally innocent person who'll um, agree to uh, a plea bargain. The majority of those who have convictions have never seen the day in court. Um, so, you know, whether they're, for me, it's whether people have committed crimes, they're guilty or not, the severity um, should be considered, and that's not what we have right now. We don't have um, judicial uh, discretion, which is the ability to look at those situations and what is severe, has people changed, how do they contribute, how do they not? Um, so for me, the issue really is the ability of having due process and rights for our community. Um, and I think that's, the um, at least the angle for me and my organizing and advocacy work that has allowed me to um, do work on as a commissioner because um, I'm not advocating necessarily 
to break laws <laughs> and you know not to follow laws i i just really advocate for um what is um equitable uh what is uh has equality to it and um fair and accessible um, resources to the same things that any other communities have um, to succeed. And we don't have that in terms of uh, the issue of deportation. So when the Trump administration um, and any administration before that uh, has uh, deported Cambodians, um, it's always concerning, but it's more so just in the, this administration where we're seeing almost a 300% increase of those in our community who are being deported um, all at one time. Um, so the largest uh, removals are happening right now. And that uh, it became a striking crisis for myself, uh, Balmani, uh, Selong. Uh, Buntai Chiam is another member you, you may not be too familiar with, but he's, um, really important to the group formation as well yeah um, thank you yeah uh and you know savong um yes we really came together because um we we saw that uh there were community members in washington state who we knew were going to be on the flights and coming from as i mentioned um uh, Seattle area where there had been organizing around pardons already. We had um, some of that knowledge learned and um, strategized to be able to uh, work on campaigns for uh, this new set of deportees um, that we knew about because um, folks who were being deported before, it was very quiet or you know, no one wanted to acknowledge it was happening or talk about it. So even though um, there had been many people and organizations organizing and fighting against it, the, the numbers of those who were being removed each year wasn't nearly the amount that we're seeing now. And so now we see families for the first time who are coming forward asking for help. Um, and I, I'm sure uh, you know how hard that must be for families to go out of their comfort zone to admit, you know, someone has been incarcerated or that their family member is facing um, being removed to Cambodia because maybe they were a family or maybe uh, the community in which they're in really frowns upon it and has a certain perspective of people who are deported. Um, deserving it or not wanting to um, be sympathetic to their mm. um, situation before now. Mm. Um, but then when people were seeing, you know, their partners or uncles, um, cousins, friends, you know, being in danger, it becomes now um, uh, a less uh, an issue that's less about fear of embarrassment and stigma and about how they can get help. Um, and so when we formed, it was here, you know, I was getting emails, calls, uh, Facebook messages, yeah. um, and they were from 
from active people or family for the first time, really uh, stepping forward out of secrecy or, mm -hmm. um, you know, like their, their normal life um, to ask for help or look for others who may be going through the same thing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing. Uh, the process of starting the uh, Kamai anti-deportation group, uh, just, you know, in talking with Salong and talking with Savong, you know, doing my little check-in and also with Manta, um, I, I realized that it, as things start to compound uh, and things are starting to become so escalating right now as we speak, it's hard to kind of catch up what the next move from ICE is going to be, what the next move that Stephen Miller and Trump are, are putting together. So how do you try to, how do you try to get other uh, mm -hmm. organizations, communities involved to make mm -hmm. sure that, that they're on top of what's happening? And, and also how do we uh, as allies help to support your work mm -hmm. and to be better aware of what's going on where can we start to devote our resources to how do we best make sure that we put pressure on our legislators and law enforcement to not support the work that ice is doing in removing folks and also denying due process mm -hmm. yeah um great question that's a great opportunity to let other people um get involved and I would say um, in order to support uh, this um, issue of uh, family separation and deportations, uh, mass incarceration is for, and everyone can do this, and that is to really um, get a little more educated um, about what the history is in terms of you know what you're doing you 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 have at least some um back knowledge of uh why uh, you know administrations before and um it's important to understand uh, and in rapid response you don't need it so much because everyone is moving quickly to to do to move um informations to help save someone but outside of those time periods everyone can participate in learning more about the issue um, for uh, southeast asian deportations in particular there's a national um, website that uh, gives updates and tries to um, locate a lot of the resources in one place and a lot of the prominent organizers who's been doing this a long time organizations um, like CFEN, the Southeast Asian Freedom Network. Um, you mentioned Manta, she's a, a part of Release Minnesota A um, yes. in Minnesota and uh, CFEN in particular who's been doing the longest work of this uh, anti-deportation uh, fight is another organization with Manny Butch who uh, it originated in Seattle, um, and that's former incarcerated group Healing Together, uh, which um, came from Kamaya in Action originally. And so, uh, in following, you know, like the knowledge I have in terms of where um, people have been fighting before, um, oftentimes when people are exposed to an issue, it's already the, 
the tip of the iceberg yeah. and they're just hitting it. And this, the, the part that's underwater and that's the larger issue, the root issues have been there for a long time. And people have been trying to um, work at chipping it, at it away or safe passage around it. Um, but you don't see it in the mainstream until it becomes a catastrophic crisis yeah. like it is now. Um, yeah. And so what I, I found is um, the immediate often reaction is, you know, what are people doing? Are they doing enough? This is the ideas I have that can help. Um, and I really urge people to um, really try to connect to those local leaders and organizations who have been working on these issues for a long time or have longer experience with it. Um, if you're just learning about the issue now, if you're impacted, uh, searaids.org, S-E-A, raids, R-A-I-D-S.org is um, a really great place to start because it has um, information on Cambodia, Laos, which right now is undergoing yes. um, uh, ramped up uh, threats of increased deportation. Um, and so, and, and Vietnamese, um, Vietnam, um, just sharing the main sources of tools uh, where people can turn to. And so it's, there's a unified standard, you know, streamlined way of getting people educated. And then once you're a little more um, informed about what groups have been working and, you know, you recognize me and um, CAGE, uh, Release Minnesota 8, um, as folks who have been doing the work. And once that's done, find a way to tap into um, how to be involved with those groups. Because if you try to start your own thing, um, or you feel like, I, I feel like this is oftentimes um, uh, uh, impediment, or like um, it really slows up help that can get to people is, when um, I understand people are eager uh, and it's great, um, there's compassion and um, the issue really uh, connects to people or the, that um, folks wanna help, that's great. And I would recommend the best ways to do that is um, to, to learn how to be um, an advocate too, um, not just to turn to others and um, learn a little bit about what's happening, um, the people who have been leading that work or doing that work currently and really tap into um, how you can uh, get involved with them. And then from there, I think it's natural to learn uh, whether your uh, contribution is just going to be financial, you know, like supporting uh, petitions or GoFundMes, or um, you're, you're using your body to protest um, on the front lines, mm -hmm. or are you, you know, uh, maybe you're not comfortable doing any of those things, or organizing, maybe you can lend your hand in helping to do the logistical work behind the scenes in mm -hmm. creating um, the documents and yeah. running the websites um, and circulating the information, um, educating your uh, family and friends, um, reaching out to your uh, elected officials or uh, donate, uh, posting, yeah, mail, 
posting bail or donating yeah <laughs> yeah and that's i think when you're yeah, if you're really interested in helping and if even if you're really not that interested in helping but um you, you just want to find out more uh, it's great um there's so many uh people and organizations and resources that uh are out there and it's um and your to your question of how do we fight um to protect and advocate for our impacted community members from deportation is to really get their family members and them on board with this history, why they're impacted, the tools and resources, and then they become ultimately their own advocates. Um, and every campaign that has been won in terms of the ones we've been seeing recently with pardons and those who have been um, pulled off of flights, uh, like, you know, 24 hours before, just um, oh, and those who are returning, it's because of uh, really intentional, coordinated um, efforts. It's not by accident or luck. By, there's no luck in this regard in terms of uh, campaign wins or returning our people or saving them from being deported. Uh, deported. Um, and if people want to help, uh, it has to be really um, intentional about um, tapping into uh, where the work is at right now. Um, you don't have to reinvent the wheel or um, uh, if you don't know that there's people or campaigns or um, ways to help, then, um, you know, look for it because it's, it's out there. We're doing it. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I got to yeah. say, I'm just mesmerized by the level of commitment that you and your group and so many other organizations across the U.S. that have been working in solidarity with black and brown communities on anti-deportation efforts as well, which I do want to acknowledge, but also really finding ways to destigmatize the topic of deportation in our own community and empowering folks to to take a stand, to really advocate, to make their voices heard, to jam the phone lines. Mm -hmm. um, and that is something that I find so inspiring in what you're doing. And it's also part of how the victories are won is through collective community efforts that mm -hmm. do not just happen overnight. It builds and mm -hmm. builds. Mm -hmm. And it, it is so much from what you just mentioned the work is not just about luck. It's really making sure that you're holding people's feet to the fire who have the ability to make a decision on on the life of a person, the destiny of where a person goes. So mm -hmm. I gotta I, I wanna commend your work on that. It, it's it blows my mind, but it's also heartbreakingly sad that we are now in the state where they are continuing to escalate and that unfortunately we can't, our community as a whole can't save everyone um, mm -hmm. because they can be in other places in Southern states or other um, communities where a judge is not so empathetic to their cause mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. understanding or disregarding the, their own history and involvement as people you know, mm -hmm. who have committed crimes back as teenagers, whether it be shoplifting or petty crimes, but then 20 years later, they've had their families have graduated from college, but yet they are forced to return back to a land mm -hmm. that they 
did not have any attachment to. A lot of right. those folks were born in refugee camps in Thailand right. or Malaysia, but were never born in Cambodia yet. They're sent back to that place. And for their families, it's deeply traumatizing because they are having to once again re uh, see the reality that their own children or their own child, I should say, are back into a homeland that they had to escape from, that they were forced mm -hmm. to leave. So mm -hmm. it, it goes into the greater context of why we are seeing that cycle happen all over again, the separation of families that are, mm -hmm. that, are that, that were brought up in the year of 1975 when things really started to, um, to break down. And here we are now re, living that history that cycle happening all over again so mm -hmm. i want to say thank you so much for doing the work and for uh, for uh, elevating this important topic to uh, a lot of i wouldn't say to the mainstream but into a lot of people's collective uh consciousness here so mm -hmm. i want to commend you for that mm -hmm. uh, one of the last questions i uh, would like to ask you is Looking back in hindsight, I want to say thank you so much for this amazing conversation we've had up to this point. Uh, if you had to talk to your 15-year-old self, what would you tell her? <laughs> Bringing it back. Um, I, um, and I, I love that question, so I'll, I'll definitely answer. I just want to also commend you, um, Randy, for making space um, to tell our stories. That is one of the most important things you can do to help um, with combating uh, this issue of um, removals, deportation, um, stigma. And uh, so that really shines a light, not only on our stories, but hopefully to encourage others to continue talking and um, building in other ways besides, you know, that you can be a storyteller like Randy. <laughs> if, you're, if you're not an organizer like me, there's so many ways to uplift our community and help each other out um, with this issue of deportation. And you're definitely contributing to that. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I also uh, wanted to touch a little bit on um, what you had mentioned in terms of uh, those who are removed and family separation. And um, I think that definitely relates to my 15 year old self because mm -hmm. at that time I definitely was separated from my family mm -hmm. in a different type of way. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm able to um, maybe um, sympathize a little bit or, you know, like relate to the pain, uh, just a very small <laughs> level compared to, you know, forcibly um, being removed to a country um, you haven't been to and, you know, being an ocean away from your family. So, uh, you know, mass incarceration um, acts in those same ways too when um, our family members are um, behind bars and uh, incarcerated uh, at young age. Um, and spend a lot of their time in jails or serving sentences um, from their teenage years, as you mentioned, that can happen. Um, so there's different types of family separation and um, suffering and anguish um, and trauma that our community experiences with that, um, that uh, issue area in terms of family separation. So I see it as an extension of 
um, a lot of the systemic ways in which we are um, inflicted um, suffering or um, some injustices. Uh, it starts off with the, pris the school to prison pipeline. Yeah. Um, and now that pipeline continues to school to prison to deportation pipeline. And um, I was fortunate. Um, at, I was fortunate at 15 and uh, up until now that I haven't gotten into any real legal trouble, um, especially uh, before my naturalization. And so I think teenage me weren't, wasn't thinking about any of those things, but um, I um, would tell myself that um, the love that I had been looking for, um, the acceptance, the affirmation, um, the life that I felt like I deserved or I wanted at that age, um, I would probably go back and tell myself that uh, I wouldn't, I'm sure, believe me, <laughs> but that um, I had everything and everyone really has everything we need to be able to give those things to ourselves. Um, so I don't, I wouldn't need that from, you know, like necessarily, although it's good to have, <laughs> of course, you know, relationships with other human beings is important, but the most important thing for myself is, um, which I think my parents have, and uh, they uh, impacted me probably subconsciously is um, a way to really believe in yourself, um, to survive whatever is thrown at you in life. And I didn't realize I learned that from them until I was an adult. Um, probably because I thought I knew, you know, better, or I would do things differently if I was mm -hmm. them, but really the essential um, advice I would give myself is that um, it doesn't feel like it now that, uh, that you're enough or um, will ever be enough, you know, in terms of uh, smart enough, rich enough, you know, the things you might desire. Um, it may not feel that way. Um, oftentimes, there's a lot of insecurity and uh, adolescence. Um, but I would assure myself that even though I don't have someone who can give those things to me that I, I, I'm capable, uh, every person is capable of being those things for themselves. And that's the responsibility and the agency I learned <laughs> as I um, got older, which you know allowed me to also appreciate my parents more and others in the community and different um, experiences that our Southeast Asian um, refugee and immigrant um, families and communities have gone through. Um, and I would also just a uh, point of clarification, um, say whether or not we're good people or bad, like, you know, in your example of someone who may have committed um, something stupid and then uh, um, ended up with a record and then later on as an adult, um, 
being okay in terms of success, you know, having a family, being a totally different person, I would, you know, being able to tell my 15 year old self this, even if I was the worst teenager and stealing and, you know, like what we morally would judge as right and wrong um, in terms of uh, those type of judgments, of course, there's personal accountability, but when it comes to policy and when it comes to laws and um, in particular, you know, um, uh, foreign policies, that has less to do with individuals and more so with what is equitable, what is just, um, what's fair. And, um, being able to have those uh, elements of judgment right now does not exist for judges, does not exist in uh, criminal uh, courtrooms or um, where we can advocate for the places where we're saving people and um, preventing deportations is uh, the individual cases where we're arguing for their um, ability to stay with their families because of the value they may add. And I feel like for my 15 year old self, if I was not who I am now, would someone want to save me from being deported? If I was, you know, some uh, juvenile. And I, I feel like it relates so much to what I stand behind that when it comes to systemic um, solutions, uh, and root causes of it is never going to um, be on the judgment of that individual and that their time in life because it's about um, how we run um, a society uh, on a greater scheme of how people can be um, fairly, you know, um, processed in yeah. their situation. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing and uh, one quick thing how is your son doing now that he's graduating is he starting to <laughs> be more active in what oh you're doing my, gosh. my favorite subject he's uh he's amazing he's i mean i have mom goggles on anyways but he yeah. really is doing so fantastic um he is a uh fashion design student oh nice social <laughs> Social I hope science. I can design some of the fashion that I like to wear because you know how much I love to uh, dress up every now and then. Yeah, and so I'm happy he's able to be able to like. Um, happy to try whatever he wants. Around, so. Yeah, he he's he's so supportive and um, loves you know helping people too. But he's a creative and like very That's different excellent. from my passions. Um, but he's doing amazing, of course, with graduation coming up. And, you know, he's been able to also um, stay out of trouble, you know, like, and I, I don't want to say that as like, uh, everyone should be out of trouble, but, you know, like he's mixed Khmer and black and male. And, uh, um, um, we're in Eastern Washington, which is the much more conservative side of Washington. Um, so I'm just, I feel really, not just proud of him with that question, saying he's amazing, but I'm, I feel really fortunate um, as well that uh, I have a son who's healthy 
and um, thriving yeah. and pursue his life. That that's wonderful, and I think it's a, it's a credit to the love that you and your spouse have for him, and to also break the cycle that you had to experience from your parents, uh, and also maybe from your grandparents as well too. So I do think it's so important that what I've learned in our conversations that you talk about, like, you know, we haven't discussed it in a, we haven't like discussed it um, explicitly, but, but breaking that cycle of mm-hmm. trauma and making sure that it ends with you. So that way you're not going to pass on that kind of trauma to your children. So I think that is a, I think having that level of self-awareness that you've shown um, today and do that interview and reflecting back on your work and your life is, is very powerful. I think it also gives meaning that, that we have our own faults. We have repeated patterns that we inherit from our parents and from our ancestors. And mm-hmm. it's a matter of us recognizing so that we can try to put a halt to it. Not an easy task to do, but I gotta <laughs> say it's, yeah. I, I gotta say, I mean, what you've done, I mean, you do a lot of the, your work with love and compassion and it shows, and I'm so honored to know you. And, and uh, I'd be happy to like, you know, when I conclude, uh, I'd be happy to share where folks can, um, support uh, your work in anti-deportation uh, work in in the Southeast Asian American communities mm. uh, right now. So I I want to wish you the best of luck in 2020. I know you're going to do some amazing, wonderful <laughs> things. Uh, and it's an honor to have you on the podcast. It, it, it really mm. is. And I didn't realize how long we were talking for. <laughs> I think like, hearing your story is so powerful. And oh. just hearing what it took to get you to where you're at now to help others uh, in their journey. It's beautiful to watch. I think that our community as a whole has so many different diversity of stories and backstories. And yes, there's some very shared parallels with 1975, what that does. It's a year that's traumatizing for all of our community members, but the paths that we take on have several different outlets. And, um, and I certainly take a lot of inspiration from what you've shared. And Aww. thank you so much for sharing yourself uh, with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I want to ask you one last question before sure. we go. <laughs> yeah, you like the interviewer. Now. <laughs> <laughs> and this has been, um, you know, really nice to get to know you a little bit. And I appreciate so much that you're not making me to do all the talking <laughs> and you're sharing and, um, you know, engaging with me a bit too. So I feel like I can probably ask you a question. Um, sure. I'd like to know, Randy, for you, um, you mentioned, you know, um, your uh, struggles as well and how they parallel in some ways with mine, but as um, a queer and out, <laughs> I assume since you're on a podcast, yeah. of course. <laughs> um, uh, your parents, are they aware of your identity? Well, I think it's a really good question. Uh, my mom is aware, but we never really have serious discussions about it mm. you know i think she acknowledges it for my dad it's been it's, an, it's a complicated issue with because my dad and i have always had a very complicated relationship um to make the long story short mm. he does have mental health issues mm-hmm. that you know required a lot of 
care. Um, mm. What I can say is that um, a relationship does exist, but at the same time, it hasn't crossed the point where I could actually have a serious discussion with him about it. Uh. Now, has it stopped me from pursuing my wants and desires? Absolutely hey. not. Good I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think our own coming, I think the best way of putting it is our own coming out experiences um, are very nonlinear. It is not mm. all about, oh, well, I told my parents and they've accepted me. It's very mm-hmm. different from others. It's how we choose to come out and right. who do we come out to and what do we do with ourselves when we start to mm-hmm. build our better version of ourselves mm-hmm. so yeah it's, it's 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 an interesting issue like it, like my story and your stories are very different in in many right. different aspects because there's so many different angles but mm-hmm. but I definitely in some ways uh, your story does resonate with me in terms of family acceptance and, mm-hmm. and dealing mm-hmm. with the difficulties of breaking through um, or dealing with the model minorities mm-hmm. model minority mm-hmm. myth that's been placed onto us and us not being able to fulfill our parents' Mm -hmm. desires to be Mm -hmm. excellent students and have ideal situations that they had hoped for. So, but at the end of the day, I mean, how we turn, we've been blessed to turn out for the better and that we Mm. have enough of, of a realization that we can still find a, a better pathway to it. Mm. Still not an easy pathway, I must say. I do want to recognize <laughs> that not everyone has the opportunity to have the access to uh, to set us up for to set anyone mm-hmm. up for success. Mm-hmm. So no, I think it's it's a very interesting journey that we all take that we've all taken <laughs> on, right? And um, but at the same time, for myself, yeah, I would. I would uh, rather still be on that journey rather than you know, yeah. anything about how I got there. So I yeah, thank kind you of feel like, I kind of feel like, you know, me at 15 coming home pregnant and with a secret boyfriend who's black. That's I don't terrifying. Know how that, yeah. I don't know how that compares though. That's for terrifying. Our, our, our queer. Dina, yeah, well, I think it's different. I think it's very different. I think the layers are very <laughs> different, but there's more at stake when you're dealing with a human life in you. Like, okay. I don't know what that is like. I do not know what that experience is like. But to, but to be a teenage mother, and figuring out what your future is going to look like. Right. Well, it, I, I definitely feel like you know. Queerness. It's a whole new lens. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a, another area in the community that can use a lot more advocacy and education and understanding around. Oh, I think we definitely welcome too. that. Oh, yeah, I think we definitely welcome <laughs> trans, mixed, uh, non-binary. It's, it's a whole different dynamic, but it's also, again, shows that our community is not just one linear uh, cis hetero uh, yes. typical <laughs> heteronormative yes heteronormative mm-hmm. nature so I, I do think that everyone has a path that they can get on um to a, a level mm. of comfort rather than just one straight narrow path right right so, yeah uh, and fun yeah. fact that a lot of our leaders in the anti-deportation movement for a long time has been queer um, folks, yeah. LGBTQ, that is also uh, very true. Women. 
That is also very true. And thank yeah. you so much, Sina. Really wishing you all the best. Thank and we'll talk again. And looking forward to uh, talking with you soon. <laughs> all right. Have a good one, Randy. Bye.